Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 11-20, republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Notes on the First Epistle of John. 1 John chapter 1 This epistle brings before us the manifestation of eternal life in the person of Jesus, the word of life, a life that had not hitherto been seen, but was revealed not only that believers might see it, but that it might be theirs in the Son as a present possession. The presence of the Son of God in this world had brought wonderful things to light. God, whom no man had seen at any time, had been declared in the only begotten Son of his bosom, the Father's name had been made known to the men given to the Son out of this world and the believer in the Son had the right to take his place as a child of God. As born of God, and as having the Spirit of God, the believer has now the capacity and the power to enter into the great unfoldings of the Spirit concerning these divine communications. Verse 1. The epistle commences with what was from the beginning of Christianity in this world, the beginning of something entirely different from Judaism. When, in incarnation, the Son of God came into the world, there was something brought in that had not been here before. So far as this world is concerned, eternal life is entirely new. It had its beginning down here in Jesus, and it was manifested in one who was seen and heard. That is, it was here in a man. A real man, who was seen, heard, contemplated and handled. The humanity of the Lord Jesus was real and perfect. At Patmos, what John saw was in vision, but he saw Jesus in this world with his natural eyes. It was no vision, for the incarnation was a divine reality. The disciples heard the Son, saw him, and contemplated what they heard and saw in him. Moreover, to emphasize the reality of the incarnation, he says, and our hands handled. Both before and after his death, their hands had handled the body of the Lord Jesus. John had been in closest touch with him, he had lain in his bosom. These things of which the Apostle speaks concern Jesus as the word of life. He was not only, the Word, before and in incarnation, that is the one in whom all the thoughts and mind of God find expression, but the Word of life, in whom there has been expressed this life that God desired to bring before men. 1 John chapter 1 verse 2. If then the life has been manifested, there is no need for men to seek after it apart from him in whom it has been brought to light. It is there in him for the delight of every believer in Jesus. Peter, even before he received the Holy Spirit, felt the attraction of that life in Jesus. The divine nature within him delighted in its perfections as its words fell from the lips of his master, so that he could say, Lord to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And what else was it that attracted John to the bosom of Jesus? There, in the personal love of Jesus, he enjoyed something of the heavenly life made manifest in the Son of God. The disciples were thus enabled to report as witnesses of the eternal life, a life that was with the Father, and which was manifested to them. If eternal life was new, so far as this world was concerned, it had been with the Father before time was. It was with the Father that the Son lived in this life, this is its divine and heavenly character. The life that man lived in naturally commenced with Adam in Eden, here was a life of a different order, it had its existence in eternity, it belonged to another world, although manifested here. It had not been manifested to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, or any of the saints of a previous dispensation, for it was with the Father, who had not been revealed until the Son came. 1 John chapter 1 verses 3 to 4. The object of the Apostles' testimony was that believers might have fellowship with them in the enjoyment of those things they were privileged to communicate. This is true Christian fellowship, and what belongs to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
how much we would have lost had not these blessed communications been made to us, how much is lost if we do not avail ourselves of the precious privileges that are ours in the enjoyment of such fellowship. Fellowship here is vital, it can only be known by those who have eternal life, by those who are born of God and know the Father. For this fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Oh the sweetness and joy of being permitted to commune with the Father and the Son, yea, and to commune with each other about the Father and the Son. We can have the same thoughts and feelings as the disciples of old had regarding Jesus, and regarding the Father. Moreover we can speak to the Son about the Father, and speak to the Father about the Son, listening to to hear what the Son tells of the Father, and what the Father thinks of the Son. What deep, heavenly joy possesses the heart as we touch these things. We tell the Father of our delight in the Son, knowing that the Father, from all eternity, has found his delight in him. Here indeed our joy is full. It may be that the apostles had a special part in this fellowship, as having companied with the Lord upon earth, and especially as having been sent forth by the Lord in the promulgation of his testimony. Still our fellowship is with them, and with the Father and the Son, in the enjoyment of the same things, and, in some small way, as connected with the same testimony. Whether we think of fellowship in relation to communion in the circle of divine affections into which we have been brought, or in regard to the contemplation of the Father's counsels, or in connection with the interests of the Son upon the earth, there is for the heart a holy, heavenly joy, to fill every one to his capacity. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. Now we have the message that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples to bring to us, for not only had there been in Jesus the manifestation of eternal life, but the revelation of God. No man had seen God at any time, he dwelt in the thick darkness, but he was seen in Jesus, and the Son desired that his own might find their rest in the knowledge of God. The fire, the darkness, the tempest and the shakings of Sinai made even Moses exceedingly fear and quake, but the God revealed to us in his nature of light sets us at perfect rest in his presence. Purity in its perfection is found in him, and the divine nature in us finds peace and delight in this. There is not the slightest admixture of darkness in the nature of God, he is altogether pure. The clearness and transparency of his nature rejoices the heart in communion with him. When in communion with God, peace possesses the heart, for we know him, and know that we are before him in perfect consistency with his nature. We are ever discovering fresh features of the flesh in ourselves and in others, features that are repulsive to the divine nature within us, but we find the nature of God pure and unchanging. A holy nature that exposes what the flesh truly is, and in which the divine nature within rests and finds its deepest pleasures. 1 John chapter 1 verse 6. The fellowship into which we are brought in the joy of eternal life is according to the pure, holy nature of God. Every professing Christian, by his profession, claims to have fellowship with God. The test for everyone is, does he walk in the light of the revelation of God? There is no middle path here, one is either walking in the light or walking in darkness. It is impossible to walk in the light without the true knowledge of God in the soul, without the possession of the divine nature. Only as born of God, and being enlightened with the revelation of God in the Son, can we walk apart from the darkness of this world. But every professor of Christianity is brought to the test by this scripture. Do we really walk in the light? Is the knowledge of God within us? Has he wrought upon us by his Spirit in the power of his word? If not, we walk in darkness, we lie, and do not practice the truth. What a solemn condemnation for many who claim to have fellowship with God. They cannot have fellowship with God in the nature derived from Adam, in the things of the flesh or of this world. 
it is false to claim fellowship with God without having had to do livingly with him in Jesus. To be without God in his Son is to walk in darkness. We can only practice the truth as we know the truth in him who said, I am the truth. To pretend to be a Christian without the life of God is to utter and practice falsehood. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7. But every true Christian walks in the light, and in the same light in which God is, the light in which he has been revealed in Jesus. The knowledge of God that has come to us in this blessed revelation abides in the heart of the believer. And it is the possession of this divine knowledge that makes the Christian different from every other man in this world. We take our way through the darkness of the present scene illumined with the true knowledge of the nature, character and will of God. His love has been learned in the Son, and the rich grace of his heart has brought us into the enjoyment of it. We may not always walk according to the light, for we have the flesh in us as well as the divine nature, but once in the light the Christian can never leave it. Our enjoyment of the knowledge of God will depend on the measure and character of our communion with God, but the knowledge of God in the heart can never be lost. As having the divine nature, and the presence within us of the Holy Spirit, we have the capacity and the power for the enjoyment of the revelation of God, a revelation believed through faith, and consciously known by the Spirit of God. As walking in the light of the knowledge of God, we have fellowship with one another. All true believers have communion with each other in the precious communications given to them by the Son. They are bound together with living, indissoluble ties, they possess the nature of God and the life communicated by the Son, therefore the things belonging to the Father and the Son. The things pertaining to the life that is theirs as children of God, naturally engage them when they meet together. This must be distinguished from ecclesiastical fellowship, from what belongs to the testimony of the Church. Church fellowship has broken down, and is in ruins today, but here is an aspect of fellowship that abides amidst the ruins of the Church. So that when we meet true believers, wherever they may find their church fellowship, we instinctively become engaged with the things of Christ, with the realities of the divine revelation presented to us in Jesus. As walking in the light, and as having fellowship with one another, Christians also have divine cleansing from the defilement that their sins produced. How could Christian fellowship be enjoyed with the stains of sins upon the Spirit? The precious blood that is the ground of our justification from all guilt, from every charge of sin, removes from our spirits the sense of the defilement those sins had left. But there is no question of renewed application of the blood, what is brought before us here is the infinite and abiding efficacy of the precious blood of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, or remove defilement from us, but the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The person of the Son of God gives propitiation its supreme and eternal value. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. Although cleansed from our sins, we still have sin within us. The nature derived from Adam remains until the present life is brought to a close. We have been morally cleansed from the pollution of the old nature, even as the Lord showed in John chapter 13, he that is washed all over needeth not to wash save his feet, but that nature is within the flesh in which dwells the principle of sin. If the flesh is allowed to act, its defiling influence is felt in the conscience and on the spirit. So that, if any one say that he has no sin, he deceives himself. Moreover, the truth is not in such, for the truth that brings to us the knowledge of God also gives us to know ourselves. The truth within does not make us insensible to sin, but the rather gives a deeper consciousness of its true character. The dreadful character of sin is not felt in the soul until God works there, nor is its working realized unless there is truth in the inward parts. 
Therefore he who claims to be without sin exposes himself to be ignorant of God, ignorant of what sin is, insensible to what is so abhorrent to God and self-deceived. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. Having a sinful nature, the fruits of it manifest themselves, even in the Christian, when he is not walking in communion with God. But our sins are not to be covered up, they are to be confessed. Coming in confession to God, we learn that he is faithful and righteous to forgive. We can have the fullest confidence in God, his faithfulness is known in the forgiveness we receive. With each other, we may be very slow to forgive, and very grudgingly pardon those who confess to us their wrongdoings. But God is faithful in his forgiving, we can come to him perfectly assured that he will forgive, if we confess our sins. Without the confession, the guilt lies upon the conscience, and the defilement on the spirit. Forgiveness on God's part is also a righteous thing, and this because of the work of the cross. God could not pardon the sinner in righteousness apart from the work of Christ, therefore his forgiving of sins magnifies the great work of propitiation accomplished by the Lord Jesus. Then there is the cleansing from all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness in the Christian calls for confession, not only that we might have the sense of God's pardon, but also that the defilement produced on the spirit might be removed. This is not cleansing by a fresh application of the blood to the believer, but is produced through the action of the word of God on the defiled spirit. Our first coming to God as guilty sinners could not rightly be excluded from this verse, its abstract nature leaves room for this, but it is good for us as failing Christians at all times. 1 John chapter 1 verse 10. But it is a very solemn and serious thing for any to say that he has not sinned, to thus refuse the word of God. God has plainly told us in his word that all have sinned, and for anyone to refuse this is to manifest that God's word is not in him. God has magnified his word above all his name, and it is grievous neglect to be unacquainted with it. And how grave the folly that rejects God's word. Men may think lightly of their treatment of the scriptures, but God does not. Of such as say, in defiance of the word, that they have not sinned, God brings against them a serious charge. He does not say that they are mistaken, or that they are ignorant or deceived, but that they call him a liar. No man will take lightly being called a liar, even if all men are liars, how much more does God, the God who is light in his nature, feel the insolent refusal of the creature to accept his word.